this morning. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horn shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. And then if you jump down with me to chapter 29, verses 38 to 46. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer it with a grain offering, and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Well, thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on the hearing of it. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we ask this morning, as we come to your word, you grant us the illumination of the spirit that we might understand the spiritual things which can only be spiritually discerned. Lord, remove the scales from our eyes. Help us to see and grasp the heights and depths of your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when someone walks into your house, what is the first impression that they get? when they walk into your home? It's an important question to consider because as the great philosopher Will Rogers said, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. He was a comedian, not a philosopher, if you don't know who he is. So think about houses you've walked into and the first impression. In some houses, you probably walk in and the first impression you get is that these homeowners make and spend a lot more money than I ever will and ever have. In other houses, your first impression as you walk in is that these homeowners either really like the 80s or they just stop caring after that point. (laughs) And then in still other houses, like mine, your first impression is, wow, there is a lot of kids and a lot of chaos. We We should pray for them and leave quickly before someone attacks us with a plastic sword. First impressions are important, especially when it comes to real estate and house hunting. So there was a study conducted in 2013 by a psychology organization in Toronto And it was examining the trends of home purchasers and even the the way they made their decisions. And it found that 80% of potential home buyers determined if a home was right for them as soon as they entered the house and took their initial look. 
And even if they decided this home is not right for us and they found that it has all these great features, it was so difficult for them to overcome that emotional decision they made once they walked in to the front door. Well, as we turn our attention to the tabernacle, what is the first impression one would get as they entered into God's earthly house? What was the first impression? As an Israelite worshiper entered the east gate of the tabernacle, their first impression would have been determined by the very first object that their eyes laid hold of, namely the altar of sacrifice. So God intentionally placed this altar at the front of the tabernacle so that it would be the first impression one would get as they walked into his earthly house. So let's unpack that further. What first impression did God intend to give with this item that you would first see? The altar of sacrifice was designed by God to symbolize that you cannot approach his holy presence unless you have a spotless substitutionary sacrifice. That's what God was communicating. In other words, this altar visually symbolized that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And without the forgiveness of sins, there is no fellowship with a holy God. So we're going to look at this and we're going to first start by looking at the physical structure of the altar of sacrifice. So what did it look like and how was it staged in the tabernacle? So as I noted already, this was the first item that you approached. Moses was told specifically, here's the instructions, follow it exactly as I told you and showed you on the mountain. And he was to place it just inside the entrance. And it's interesting, when you look at Exodus 25 to 40, when God gives the instructions for the tabernacle, he starts with the item that is closest to his presence, the ark, namely, in the Holy of Holies, and then he works backwards to what the Israelite worshiper would have experienced. So I'm actually kind of inverting that, not, not to say that I'm wiser than God, but I'm inverting it in this series, and what the way I'm going to preach the series is as you would encounter the items in the tabernacle, I'm going to follow that order, working outward in rather than inward out. So we start with the altar of sacrifice because it's the first thing. Well, now regarding the material of the altar, it was made out of acacia wood that was then overlaid with bronze. So acacia wood is a common piece of wood that comes from a common tree that you'd find in tropical, subtropical regions. We find them here all over. And the reason they're used is because they're extremely durable. They're resistant to damage, especially by water or insects. And if you wanted to build something that was going to last, that was going to bear up under the pressure of extreme use, which we're going to see this one had that, this is the type of material you'd want for the job. But it was also overlaid with bronze, which is combining, it's an alloy, combining copper and tin. So if you, if you look at a penny, you can kind of see what it looked like, except it's a little bit more shiny than that. And this overlay was used because it is also very durable. It's very workable. It's a good conductor of heat, and it can also be polished and smooth to give it this kind of radiant, luminous look to it. Well, as for its appearance, it had a number of features that are pointed out to us in Exodus 27. One prominent feature of the altar was the horns that protruded at each corner of the altar. So it's a, it's a square box, but as you look at it, it has four horns on the altar. Look at Exodus 27, verse 2. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. So these four horns are there. And ropes would be tied to these four corners as they're also tied to the sacrificial animal so that the animal would stay there on the altar. So it was a functional purpose. And also blood from the animal 
would be dabbed on the four corners of these altars. Well, the altar also had two sets of rings on each side that allowed poles to go through it so it could be carried. And if you're wondering what does this look like, I have for free put a visual image of this in your bulletin. So you can see it as well as hear about it. So look at Exodus 27 verses 6 and 7. You have these rings and poles so they can be carried. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it was carried. So one of the common features you're going to see with all the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle is that they are portable. They are designed to be carried and moved. Why is that? Well, think about this. They're in the wilderness coming out of bondage in Egypt, but they're going somewhere. They're going to the land that God has promised. He's promised them a new home, a new land flowing with milk and honey. So the glory cloud presence resting above the Holy of Holies, anytime that lifted up, it meant it's time to pack up camp and follow the Lord wherever he leads us. And every time that happened, the people were to remember, we're not home yet. We're going to the place that God is going to show us, the place where he's going to set his name and dwell permanently, as it were. And so they were to look forward to that place that God would give them rest, a land of their own. So the portability of these items always reminded them of that. Well, the altar also had a grating system built into it. So think of a grill or a fire pit, something you're going to use to burn stuff. You want oxygen to flow through. You're going to burn things on there. Well, look at Exodus 27:4. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. So this was not only a grating system that was set there, but it had rings on it so you could lift it up and clean it out. And this grating system served a very functional purpose. So there's instructions given to the priests as they're overseeing this altar. So some of the priests of Aaron were specifically tasked with overseeing specific pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. So if you were one of the Levitical priests who was overseeing the altar, here's your job. This is Leviticus 6.13. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. He repeats the same thing in the next verse. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So if you've ever tried to maintain a fire, you know that it requires someone to give it regular, constant attention. They have shifts going all throughout the day, 24-7. This is like a 7-Eleven. You know, someone's always working there. Someone's always maintaining this fire. Well, finally, in terms of the altar's appearance, one thing not listed in Exodus 27, but was a prominent feature of it, is the fact that the altar was constantly stained with blood. It was constantly stained with blood. It's not original to the design, but once it gets used, it is a prominent feature of the altar. One commentator said, the most prominent physical feature that an Israelite would see of the altar was that it was ever burning and ever bloody. Ever burning, ever bloody. Constantly smoking, constantly stained by blood. And to explain and describe more fully what that means and why that was the case, we're going to go to our next point, which is, what was the original function of the altar of sacrifice? So here's the physical description. Now, what was the original function? How was it first used in the life of the nation of Israel? If you were an average, ordinary Israelite citizen, how would you have experienced the altar of sacrifice? Well, I could list bullet points for you, potentially put you to sleep, but I've chosen a more dramatic form of describing its original function. You know, the children are listening, so we've got to bring them into this. So here is my narrative story of how an Israelite, his made-up guy, would have experienced the altar of sacrifice. So meet Jedediah. That's who we're going to meet today. He is a keeper of sheep 
from the tribe of Judah. Now, last night, Jedidiah was sitting around a campfire with a few of the more well-known tribesmen of his clan. You know, the kind who make you feel small as you hide in the shadow of their accomplishments and you can really never measure up. Well, one in particular who was sitting around the campfire was Bezalel the craftsman. Now, if you don't know Bezalel, this is a guy with renown and reputation. He was graced by God with all the ability, intelligence, and skill of every kind of craft because he was the one who was going to oversee, who did oversee and constructed the tabernacle. So this is a guy with quite a reputation. So as Bezalel was describing how God used him to construct the tabernacle, Jedidiah noticed the look of respect on other people's faces as they admired and looked up to Bezalel. And that's when the lure of envy started dangling before his heart. He thought, I wish people looked at me the way they look at Bezalel. Oh, to have that. So Jedidiah swallows the hook of envy and he blurts out to the group, I killed a lion today. He knows it's a lie. Didn't happen. But even more, he knows it's an impressive lie. When someone in the group turns all the attention to Jedediah by asking, how'd you do it? He can't resist elaborating. Well, first I knocked it unconscious with my slingshot, one shot, and then I crushed its head with a boulder, a very heavy boulder. And they're impressed, but his conscience is not. All night, his conscience plagues him with a guilt that will not let him sleep restfully. His imagination keeps replaying the moment that Moses came down from the mountain with those two tablets of stone. And he can see as clear as day in the bottom right corner of that second tablet, thou shalt not bear false witness. And so Jedediah rolls out of bed and he knows that today he must bring a sacrificial offering to the Lord to make atonement for the guilt of his sin. So he immediately goes to his flock and he knows that he must pick out one of the best male lambs in his flock that he can find. And he finds a good one. Not a single discoloration on the wool and not a single defect on the body. Surely this one will pass the inspection that the priest is going to give it. So he puts the lamb over his shoulders and he heads for the tabernacle. And as he steps across the threshold of the tabernacle, one of the priests stops him and asks to see the animal so that he can inspect it. And he thoroughly inspects it to make sure that this passes the test of one sacrifice that is worthy of being offered to the Lord. Well, the animal passes the inspection and then Jedediah approaches the great bronze altar and the group of priests that are standing next to it. And one of them asks him, which of the sacrifices are you here to offer? He responds, a burnt offering. With that answer, they then proceed to give him these instructions. Place your hands on the head of the lamb and make confession of your sins over it. So Jedediah stretches out both his hands and lays it on the head of that lamb And he prays, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So forgive me, for out of the envy of my heart, I have borne false witness. After he's done praying, a priest hands him a knife and instructs him to slit the throat of the lamb. While another priest holds a bronze bowl just under the neck. It is messy and it is not pretty. No wonder the garments of all the priests standing around Jedediah are stained with blood, as is the altar. Once the bowl is full, the priest dips his hand into the bowl and starts dabbing each of the four corners of the altar with blood, as he proclaims, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, 
keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And then they take the lamb and they cut it up with incredible precision. It's as if these guys are skilled butchers. And then they place it all on the altar to be consumed by the fire. And as they do that, they say together in unison, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Finally, before Jedediah departs, one of the priests lifts up his hands and pronounces over him, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. As the benediction ends, Jedediah turns and heads for home. The first thing he does as he arrives back home is check on his flocks. And while doing this, he notices how much larger and well-kept his neighbor's flock is. He begins to wish that he could trade flocks with his neighbor. And then it hits him. He has coveted and envied once again, and he now has to repeat the burnt offering all over again. Now the story ends there, and he lived happily never after. Well, now to gain some perspective of the staggering amount of use the altar got, take that one dramatized fictional account stretched over one lifetime, over multiple days of doing that over and over again, and then multiply it by about 800,000, which was the Israelite population of eligible sacrificial participants, you know, give or take a few dozen. So think of that's the magnitude of use this altar got. So when, when an Israelite went there, there was a long line. It was a flurry of activity. There was blood everywhere. There was animals being cut up and... It's a messy, very messy sight. So this whole process, think of the whole process we just walked through. Conviction of sin, followed by selection of a sacrifice, followed by inspection of the sacrifice, followed by confession over the sacrifice, then slaughtering the sacrifice, then sprinkling the blood of that lamb on the sacrifice, and then burning that sacrifice on the altar. That process was, like that sentence, incredibly wearisome. Okay, It is extremely bloody, And most of all, it is frustratingly repetitive over and over and over. So why did the altar demand a wearisome, bloody, and frustrating process that you had to repeat over and over again? What was God trying to tell the Israelites and by extension us through the altar and the sacrificial system connected to it? Let's consider our final point, namely the spiritual symbolism of the altar of sacrifice. So the tabernacle is designed by God, as I said, to be a visual symbol to us of some vital spiritual truths. So think of each component, each furnishing, and each function of the tabernacle is like a beam of light shot through a prism that comes out the other side in a multifaceted theology lesson. And in that multifaceted theology lesson, we learn something about the glorious character of God. What is he like? We learn something about the sinfulness of man. What has sin done to our relationship with the holy God? We learn something about the work of Christ. What has he come to do and fulfill? And then what does it mean in light of that to live in fellowship with God? So we're going to walk through those four parts of that multifaceted theology lesson. So from the altar, learn, first of all, that God is both a sin-hating and a sin-forgiving God. These two are placed right side by side as you look at the altar. He is a sin-hating and a sin-forgiving God. One Puritan famously said, there are no such things as little sins because there is no such thing as a little God that we sin against. 
but our pluralistic and therapeutic culture is working hard to convince us that sin is a little thing if it's even a thing at all. Our culture has reduced and distorted the definition of sin to be either not affirming someone else's viewpoint or lifestyle choices as equally valid as yours. That's sin, number one in our culture. Or hurting someone's feelings because you got in the way of their pursuit of self-fulfillment. That is the only two sins our culture recognizes properly. And yet it is really a distorted definition of sin, if one at all. Because think of the definition of sin that was visually communicated through this altar. How absolutely different and offensive that message was communicated from the altar in the tabernacle. The costliness, the deadliness of sin was on constant, unceasing display. Even the very fire that was to never go out was communicating the reality of judgment, that it is everlasting. And God was communicating through that altar that sin is fundamentally a vertical problem between creature and creator. Our culture says, if there's sin at all, it's just a horizontal problem. Don't get in other people's way. Don't harm other people. Don't tell them that they're wrong. But God says, no, no, no. Your fundamental problem is with me. God does not take sin lightly because it is a direct assault on his infinite majesty and worth. As one pastor has said, what is sin? Sin is the glory of God not honored. It is the holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. And the person of God not loved. That is sin. And that is why God hates it. Yet, at the same time, from the same altar, God was communicating that though he despises sin, he delights to show grace towards sinners. Yes, the altar demanded a laborious, wearisome, repetitive process, but at least it was there in their midst. He did not have to place an altar there. He did not have to call a people to himself. He did not have to liberate them from Egypt. And yet he places an altar there as a reminder both of sin and forgiveness. Each time the faithful worshiper came with the sacrifice, as he laid his hands on the animal, as he took the knife and slit the animal's throat, as he watched the animal be consumed by the fire, he was to think to himself, that should be me. But the Lord has provided a sacrifice, a substitute for me. He was to think of the lesson that Abraham tried to communicate Isaac as they walked up that mountain. The Lord himself will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. If we think little of sin, we will think little of God's grace. And I would spare you both. The altar was a repetitive display of God's sin-hating justice and his sin-forgiving grace. So what God has joined together, let no man rent asunder. Well, second lesson from the altar, learn that a sinner apart from Christ is utterly unable to make himself presentable and approachable to God. A sinner apart from Christ is utterly unable to make himself presentable to God. Consider this. The only reason you could cross the threshold of the tabernacle was if you had a spotless substitutionary sacrifice with you. You could not stroll into the tabernacle whenever you wanted, however you wanted. You could only come 
by the way that God had ordained, which was through the means of a sacrifice. Without it, you were trespassing on holy ground. And this is not trespassers will be prosecuted. This will be trespassers will be struck dead. Just ask Nadab and Abihu how that went for them. Well, Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable of two men who went to the temple to pray. So Jesus is illustrating two different men who go to the temple who dare to approach the holy presence of God. So there's a Pharisee and a tax collector. So the first man, a Pharisee, believed that he could approach the holy presence of God by means of his own self-made righteousness. So God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Lord, I'm here because I deserve to be. Second man, tax collector, standing far off, won't even come as near as he can, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, and he beats his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then the shocking reveal at the end of that parable that Jesus gives to his audience is that the tax collector went home justified, implying that the Pharisee goes home condemned. The defining difference being how you approach God matters. If you believe that you can approach God in your own self-made righteousness, if you believe that somehow, some way, you make yourself presentable to God or that your works contribute to making yourself approachable to the Lord, you are dead wrong. It is only the tax collector who said, God, be merciful to me, who recognized, as it were, that he needed a spotless substitutionary sacrifice to make him able to approach the presence of God. You cannot cross the threshold of God's house without the sacrifice he ordains. And yet many live under the delusion that they can or must do something to make themselves presentable to God. I can do something, or they think, I I must do something. Perhaps even you revert to this mindset from time to time. And in this mindset, you fluctuate between pretending and performing. Either, if you think you must make yourself presentable to God, you pretend that you're not all that bad. You excuse your sin, you blame shift on others, or you hide it from others, because you have to pretend that you're presentable to God. Or you try to perform. You try to perform in order to prove that you're actually as good as you think you are. And so you try to establish a form of your own righteousness in some area of your life, in your religious activity, in how you parent, in your work, and, and what you do, and what you earn, and what you give. Some form of establishing your own righteousness that shows that at least I'm good enough, Lord. Is this enough? And yet God sees through all of our attempts at pretending, at performing, and none of them are sufficient to make us presentable to his holy presence. I'm going to say something to you that your first grade t-ball coach didn't have the guts to say to you. You are not good enough. You will never be good enough. And that's actually good news because the measure of obedience to the Lord is not just good enough. It is perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. Perfect, continual, eternal, perpetual obedience, and you will not measure up. But there is one who has, who allows us to cross the threshold into God's holy presence. So let's look at our next point. From the altar, learn that Christ, by his own blood, has fully, finally, and forever canceled the guilt of all of your sin. Fully, finally, and forever canceled the guilt 
of every single one of your sins. A couple years ago, Apple was sued because it it was discovered that it was releasing new software updates that were intentionally making older products obsolete so that people would be forced to buy newer products. It's brilliant, but it is unethical apparently, okay? Yes, but in an entirely ethical and righteous way, okay, God designed the Old Testament sacrificial system with built-in deficiencies and frustrations. Okay, he wasn't hiding this. This was part of his plan from the beginning. This was just scaffolding for a greater building that was coming. And it had built-in deficiencies and built-in frustrations so that people in their frustration would long for something better. The laboriousness of the system was designed to make people long for a sacrifice that would finally give them rest. The never-ending repetitiveness of the sacrificial system was designed to make them long for a once-for-all, forever sacrifice. So they didn't have to keep coming back day after day after day. The insufficiency of it to really actually cleanse the conscience, to really actually change the heart, to really renew the behavior, was to make them long for a perfectly sufficient sacrifice that could deal with the heart of their sin issue. And we have such a spotless substitutionary sacrifice. Listen to Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. If you want to know how the altar points to Christ, I mean, just read Hebrews 9 through 11. And every priest stands daily at his service. That's key. Every priest has to stand. You don't get to sit down on the job. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, built-in deficiencies and frustrations. You don't get to sit down on the job. There's no smoke breaks, nothing. You don't get any of that. You have to stand. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time all those who are being sanctified. Old Testament priests, standing, 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 never sitting. It's like, it's like a mom doing laundry for a lot of kids. He's, he's always laundry, laundry, laundry. You never get to sit. Jesus comes, he sits down after completing his work. The Old Testament priests could never sit because they could never say, it is finished. Christ sits down because he alone says, it is finished, having perfectly completed all the work that the Father gave him to do. And what does that mean for you? It means that you get to be done with all your pretending and performing that you can be good enough or that you're not that bad because all has been paid fully, finally, and forever. It means that you can bask in the security of God's love. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that you can bask in the freedom of the security of God's love. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I love Romans chapter eight, the greatest, it's the Mount Everest of Bible chapters. It starts with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. That is what we have in Christ. No condemnation, no separation. And I love how Horatius Bernard put these truths into poetic form. He said this, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Cuts you down to size and then he builds you up. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. 
Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. I'm going to use an illustration. I'm stealing it from a pastor that I I got to hear preach in Gainesville, but it was a good one, so I'm going to use it. I I would cover my sources, but there's a couple of people here who heard the sermon, so they'll know I'm plagiarizing if I don't say this. Imagine you walk into Trinity College in Ireland, right? Is that what it's called? Yes. It has the greatest library in the world, and Angie and Chloe got to see it. It can hold seven million volumes. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm working my way up there, but I'm not quite there. And you get an all-inclusive, all-exclusive tour just by yourself to this library, seven million volumes. And as you go up to the first row of books, you see that they have your name written on the spine. But not just your name. It says, the sins of, and your name, the sins of Andrew Jacobson. And you start looking through all the spines. They all have that on the spine. You go to the second level and all the volumes on the second level, seven million volumes with the spine, the sins of, fill in your name. So you dare to take one book out from this and you you open it to the table of contents and it's broken up into three parts. Sins of thought and word and deed and the first about almost million volumes are sins related to breaking the first commandment in thought, word and deed. And you just look through the table of contents and you see all the different ways that it's breaking up. And then you go to the fifth section where it's sins of breaking the fifth commandment. And it's the same thing. It's yours. It's got a big table of contents. And then even the seventh commandment, you go, sins of breaking the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And there's even, there's a lot of volumes, a lot of volumes there. So you look, you look through and you dare to go to the actual contents of the book. And so you flip there, and to your surprise, there's a lot of writing, but it's covered over in this huge stamp that says, it is finished. Next page, it is finished. Next page, it is finished. Next page, and you look through every single volume. Every single page is covered in a stamp that says it is finished, which means paid in full, fully, finally, and forever, all cleared. That's what we have in Christ. That's what the altar points to. The repetitiveness of it points to the completion of Christ. The laboriousness of it points to the finished work of Christ. The wearisomeness of it points to the rest that we have in Christ. Well, finally, from the altar, learn that to live in fellowship with God means that we no longer offer the sacrifice of guilt, but the sacrifice of gratitude. There is no more sacrifices that need to be made for guilt. It is taken away. But we do offer continually, repeatedly, the sacrifice of gratitude. So in light of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, the very concept of sacrifice has been transformed from an emphasis on guilt in the Old Testament to gratitude in the New. In other words, the concept of and imagery of sacrifice, it doesn't disappear in the New Testament. It doesn't go away after the Gospels. In fact, in the New Testament letters, it comes up over and over again. But it takes on a grander, richer Gospel meaning. Let me illustrate. Romans 12:1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Hebrews 13, 15 and 16. Through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for with such sacrifice the Lord is pleased. And then Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and pleasing sacrifice to God. So the grace of God to us in Christ, it eliminates all guilt. But it doesn't just stop there. It eliminates all guilt and then it awakens and enlivens all gratitude. It is the fuel and fire for a life lived to the glory of God. And when we get the order wrong, when we think that we have to work for the favor of God rather than from it, we start to put out the fire of gratitude because we start to get either prideful or despair. We always need to put it in the right order. Christ has paid for all guilt, no condemnation, no separation. So we live in all gratitude. So we present the whole of our lives as a sacrifice of praise to God, not to earn his favor, but because you already have it fully, finally, and forever in Christ. Let's pray.